Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamario, Global Logistics and Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips Executive Search. Specializing in board level and executive recruitment across the region, my job is also to connect you with global experts, thought leaders and executives in all things supply chain. This is episode 15 and I'm very happy to have with us today Dr. John Gatorna. John is the executive chairman of Sydney-based specialist advisory business, Gatorna Alignment, and he's one of the most respected supply chain thought leaders globally. He has spent a lifetime working in and around enterprise supply chains in many different capacities, line executive, researcher, consultant, teacher, mentor, and author. He's passionate about the subject, some might even say obsessive. In the late 1980s, John became uh, disenchanted with the lack of conceptual depth in the logistics field. And as it turned out, this did not improve much as logistics thinking morphed into supply chains in the, supply chains in the 1990s. So he started to search for a new model that would better inform the design and operation of enterprise supply chains, seeking to satisfy customers and consumers at the appropriate cost to sell. And then he found dynamic alignment. So for the last two decades, John has been working with major blue chip corporations around the world to take his new model from the conceptual stage to a final level of granularity. Companies such as Dell, Unilever, Taze Australia, Schneider Electric, It has been a complex task involving learning about and combining several disparate disciplines, consumer, customer behavior, internal cultural capability of the enterprise, leadership styles, and of course, the operational aspects of corporate logistic net- networks and supply chain. The unique quality about John's perspective is that he presents a multidisciplinary whole of business approach to the design and management of enterprise supply chains, and this requires, of course, an eclectic mindset. He has written several books, Along the way, uh, as his thinking has evolved, but his three most recent titles have been Living Supply Chains, Dynamic Supply Chain Alignment, and Dynamic Supply Chains, How to Design, Build, and Manage People-Centric Value Networks. Another book is in the works due mid-2020. Also, just, uh, just uh, as a final uh, reminder, John also has a strong academic pedigree, having taught undergraduate, postgraduate, and executive programs at the University of New South Wales, Macquarie University in Sydney, Oxford and Cranfield Universities in the UK, and Normandy Business School in Le Havre, France. He currently holds an adjunct, adjunct professorships at Cranfield School of Management and Macquarie Graduate School of Management, and is chairman of the advisory board at the Logistics of Institute and Supply Chain Management, Victoria University, Melbourne. He also teaches as the commun- uh, communication program at Normandy Business School, Le Havre, France. John, welcome, and it is our pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Renu. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so... To talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, the industry side, and I think it's very important and a lot of our listeners are very curious to find out more about the Gatorna dynamic alignment, which is basically your, your, uh, your concept is something that you have developed and fine-tuned over time. Tell, tell us a little bit you know, about it, how you came up with it, and, and uh, you know, about the history. Right. Well, when I came back from England in the early 80s uh, to Australia, um, I uh, went back into an academic job at Singapore. fed up with that and uh, started my own boutique consultancy. Um, and what I was determined to do was uh, really try to build some uh, conceptual strength, if you like, around what was a very operational field at the time. And um, I was joined by uh, another colleague with a PhD. His PhD was in uh, actually he'd been studying the correlation uh, between culture and um, how much culture played into the delivery of strategy. I, from my own strengths, had uh, coming out of Cranfield, uh, had been very strong looking at uh, logistics, but very much from a marketing perspective, looking at it from the customer end. And we were both interested in leadership. 
And literally, there was a bit of serendipity involved, but we came up with this concept uh, called, well, at the time we called it strategic alignment. We later on uh, changed the name to dynamic alignment because we realised that the marketplace was a moving a moving feast. But in those days, uh, strategic alignment essentially meant if you want to perform well or you want to make money, you have to line four things up. And it's an enterprise concept. It's not a it's not a supply chain concept. So what we did is we went wide and we started to think about the whole enterprise. And then from that, when, once we got into it and we started to at the marketplace, uh, we realised that it, it gave us the answer to the question: if one size fits all isn't right, how many supply chains you need? But just going back a bit, uh, so the alignment idea was: um, if you want to make money, you want to perform well. Um, you have to line four things up. You have to understand the expectations of your customers in the target market. Uh, you then uh, look at that and develop your value propositions. Uh, then underneath that, you look at your organisation design and what it means is that you, if you've got multiple segments, you probably need, need multiple um, subcultures in the business and finally you need leadership. So the, thing, the way it works is that a, a good leadership team will look at the marketplace and have a really good understanding of what that marketplace is is expecting of of their of your company they will then develop the appropriate operational strategies and they'll then work down and develop the appropriate internal capabilities including organization design and things like that processes etc so that's the top end of course there is a reverse end to this which we then later on extended where we went right backwards into the source markets. And we said, well, if this applies to sales markets, why wouldn't it apply to source markets? And what we did, we were the first people to uh, really introduce the uh, notion that in the supply base, uh, they're human. So everything that applies, uh, you know, amongst customers applies to the supply base. And we went and we segmented the supply base as well. And we said, you know, we need procurement strategies which take into account uh, you know, whether a, a, a supplier is loyal, uh, whether a supplier has a, a, low, a low cost structure that can come up with a big volume of, of product in the first order, uh, whether the, the supplier, you know, has the capacity to quickly respond to a replenishment order, these sorts of things. In other words, yes. we went beyond the, the sort of traditional, traditional AT Kearney yeah. and Accenture approach, which was let's do a strategic sourcing mm-hmm. analysis and how to let's rationalise the the supply base and let's rationalise the the product range. Mm-hmm. And yes, that does give you some dollars, but it doesn't tell you anything about how anything more about the way your uh, supply base is uh, is wanting to interact with you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very short sort of mm-hmm. history of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, you've been working for that for the last 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> thank, yeah. you for the, thank you for the summary. And, and also, as far as I know, you were one of the pioneers who coined and, and, and contributed to the term of 4PL. Uh, maybe if you can tell us a little yeah, bit about Yeah, look, I, I can't claim to be there on day one. What happened was that uh, Anderson Consulting approached me in 1994 um, and wanted to have me join um, the company because they wanted to start a supply chain practice in uh, Asia Pacific. They already had one in the US and in Europe. And uh, during the course of uh, about 12 months, we discussed, and then finally I rolled my business into theirs and joined Anderson uh, Consulting in um, uh, 1995 and became part of their global um, supply chain consulting practice, which was a very big practice. 
Um, now, at that time, uh, they had just uh, done some research in Europe and they'd had some discussions in the US and uh, a partner called Bob Evans, who recently came out of um, Caterpillar, actually, um, I think was the first one who uh, actually coined the phrase 4PL, but I wasn't far behind him in the sense that um, Bob was a colleague uh, and other partners in the global supply chain practice at Anderson became very enthusiastic about this whole 4PL structure because we saw it uh, as a way of overcoming a lot of the, um, uh, how can I call it, the weaknesses of, of then perceived weaknesses that the 3PLs were suffering. Mm -hmm. And we knew this because we'd done market research amongst their clients and we found about two-thirds of the of the market base for 3PLs around the world were dissatisfied uh, with their performance. And it was from there we started to build and, of course, uh, you know, Anderson then became Accenture and we, we had a number of fairly uh, successful 4PLs around the world. However, I'd have to say that the, the 4PL, the original concept, was pretty rigorous and a lot of companies you know, jumped on the bandwagon and... 3PLs just changed the, the, the name on the, the door and they didn't really they appreciate do, right? Yeah, we, and they didn't really appreciate what we were talking about. And I had people calling me and saying, me, you know, can we do a tender for a 4PL? And I said, no, well, it's actually a consortium. And, and so when I left Accenture and retired and went off to start my own thought leadership business, I, I must admit I, I looked for ways of modifying the 4PLs, making it a lot more flexible, more user-friendly and came up with what I call the joint services company, um, uh, JSC, which is the same concept, but it, it was more about how you plug and play different members of the consortium if they're not performing or if something becomes obsolete and you need a new. Mm. And so the, the that sort of new age for PLB is something I've been pushing ever since. Got it. Got it. And I'm obviously now uh, it, it has caught up definitely and a lot of people are talking about it yep. and using it. Um, and tell us a little bit about some of the most successful projects you've been involved with uh, with your clients. I mean, we mentioned, uh, of course, you did work with Unilever, you did work with Dell, Schneider Electric. I mean, what's what's uh, what made it successful? What can our listeners learn from it? Look, you know, again, it's it's the wonderful thing about this alignment idea is when we did the work, um, particularly in that we started uh, in the marketplace and we de- went out and used uh, behavioural segmentation techniques, and we found that uh, in across a whole range of different industries that. Uh, there are 16 different types of buying behaviour that we could identify, archetypes, archetypes, that we could identify in the marketplace, which accords very well with with the Myers-Briggs uh, um, framework as well. And, and no surprise because Myers-Briggs is based on Jungian psychology yes. and, and, of course, our work was as well. So, um, But that was too many and we kept looking and trying to make uh, our understanding of what's going on in the marketplace more granular and try to look for the more dominant uh, uh, different sets, buying of behavior, behavior. sets of behaviours. And we actually got the number down to th- uh, to four. And and we subsequently went back to five a few years ago when we discovered that the uh, projects uh, marketplace, the construction marketplace and the, s- the supply chain service them had been going on for thousands of years in an informal way but hadn't been properly formalised. And we, we coined the phrase campaign supply chain for that. But essentially, we, we, we came back down to a, a small number. And really, I started writing about that um, or probably in 1997, I think, but the first book called Living Supply Chains, I put out describing this in great detail. 
uh, came out in 2006. And it was around about that time that um, uh, Anna Clayton, who was at uh, Dell at the time, uh, picked up my book and made contact and, uh, you know, we gave her some advice there and to uh, how to, uh, you know, architect the um, supply chains there. She subsequently then moved to Snyder Electric about 2012 and uh, that's a, a big company, very complex um, structure, many, many SKUs uh, and, again, I met up with Annette and we spent about four years working with them and uh, around the world, uh, first initially in the Pacific, then in China, uh, then in South America, North America, and uh, about the only place we didn't go was in, into Europe. And really um, that was probably one of those things that was very successful because and it allowed us to really use our pretty much our full methodology. We did the segmentation in each marketplace, which we found similar segments but slightly different because of the different uh, country cultures mm-hmm. in different places. That that modifies the company culture, if you know what I mean. Uh, but the broad segments were the same, and we were able to develop a global uh, supply chain strategy, uh, which just varied a little bit in terms of tweaking it from from region to region, 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 place to place. The the results differed um, in a place like Asia-Pacific where the cost was was very high and rehandling and shipping and everything. Um, The the sorts of numbers uh, where we we put the segmentation and tested out different scenarios from the segmentation using a network model, and the two have to go together, uh, we found that... Um, you know, we were seeing um, reductions in or scenarios that could give us up to 20% reduction in logistics costs as a percentage of sales. Uh, now, obviously, the, it, you have to roll that out over a period of years and you know, implement it. And, and there were some, you know, there were some really interesting lessons learned about how to, um, uh, uh, once you've got the blueprint, how to start rolling out, uh, you know, that blueprint. Um We've done some very – that particular one, we didn't actually look at the supply base. Um, it's something it's something I tried to convince Annette about, but uh, they they spend about 12 billion euros on on, uh, um, on, on their uh, supply side. I think they're still very traditional and they haven't changed. Uh, however, around about the same time, we did a piece of work for a big grain company in Australia called the uh, CBH um, – and it was a cooperative, and it was a very interesting cooperative because it was based in Western Australia. Um, it um, it had uh, ten thousand farms, about five thousand farmers, who uh, may generated a grain crop of about uh, anywhere between ten and fifteen million tons a year, and that crop had to be taken off from the ten thousand farms, and then moved through a network with trains and, and into silos and outer silos, uh, and then into four ports, and then shipped out in. 200,000 tonne type um, grain carriers. And what we're able to do there, again, using uh, having a great client who uh, allowed us to do this, we did the segmentation of on the front end and they only had 75 customers worldwide because these were big customers who bought 100,000 tonnes of grain at a time or a, a flour mill in Thailand or something like that. At the back end, they had 5,000 farms, 10,000 farmers, sorry, uh, uh, 10,000 uh, farms, 5,000 farmers, and we geocoded that, and we and we really uh, did a segmentation there, and then we fed that from both ends into a model. And again, we found that uh, we uh, saved them uh, in the first year 
um, between 15 and 20 percent. And they then had to roll out that implementation, which meant closing nearly half their silos um, and building new silos in different places, changing the way they routed the wheat, uh, changing the way the wheat was was uh, taken off and which locations they went to. So that was the complete one. And But going back even further, before I wrote these books, we did a piece of work in Scotland for general accident back in mm. about 1995 when we really were in the early days. And um, I, I give you this example because it's a, it's a service example where general accident in the UK and Scotland and Perth, Scotland, had had a very bad year. They'd lost a lot of money. They... Um, uh, change general accident. It was okay, an insurance okay. insurance company. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had both uh, general insurance and and life insurance in Scotland. Um, had ten thousand people, um, and uh, they'd had a bad year, lost a lot of money. So they changed chief executives, and they gave the job to a New Zealander who happened to run the office in Australia, who knew my work. Um, and so he asked us to go to, and we 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 went over to general accident in Scotland over a period. We spent three or four. Uh, trips over there in the space of about a year and w- guiding uh, him. Um, we actually uh, revamped their marketplace, their their strategies, their operating plan. We did a culture map of the organisation of 10,000 people uh, and we ch- he changed their leadership team. And in the course of three years, they uh, went from something like £250 million loss to £250 million profit. So it was a half a billion pounds turnaround due to the alignment idea, but also due to a relentless discipline that uh, Bob Scott applied to the task of following through. And a lot of a lot of the credit is due to him, but he mm-hmm. needed the, the framework the to framework. actually guide him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've had some big successes. Yes. No, and thank you for sharing, because also I think the, um, the interesting uh, fact is, and you've shared... Three different examples from very varied, right? So one is yep. industrial, Schneider Electric, yep. obviously a, a mammoth in the industrial space. One is on the farm agriculture side. One is on the services side, which kind of just come to show that basically it boils down to principles, right? So, I mean, one it of does. the principles, I think I, I heard you speak a lot and a lot of people know this uh, about you. You speak about segmentation, you know, really yep. get your segmentation right. Make sure that you know who your clients are and make sure that you know Who's your high-yielding clients versus who are your maybe uh, clients that are a pain in, uh, you know... Yeah, I mean, you've got to look at their mindset, and that's yes. what's not taught in universities. It's a big frustration of mine that we, in our courses and master's courses in MSCs and logistics and even on MBAs, we don't... We, we do teach students about psychology, but we don't connect it to anything. We don't apply that psychology and talk about internal culture and how it applies to delivering on plans or... How, how the same sort of idea of culture in, a, in the mindset of a customer can be measured and how you can group people based on similar mindsets rather than grouping them on whether they're from, uh, they, they work Industry for a wholesaler or they work for an institutional type or whether the client is big or small or whether the client is small or large. Those things are our ways, it's, it's an internal way of describing the customer. Mm-hmm. What we've got to do is find external ways to describe the customer. Outside in thinking. Yes, yes. And I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like the part of principle. It's almost like you've got to prioritize 
You cannot be guessing, and I heard no. you say that a lot, right? You We've been be guessing, guessing for a long time. Uh, a lot of people are guessing, and, and they don't know for sure who's my uh, yeah. most profitable client. You know, no. who should I put my eggs in? Which basket? Where should, right. I, should I put my eggs? Right. So I well, we did. I mean, just on that point, we did some work for Fonterra, and they were another big client early on, around about 1998, when we were still trying to prove the, mm-hmm. the concept. And uh, we did a global piece of work with them. Uh, we didn't build a network model, but we did a net uh, uh, segmentation across the hundred countries that mm-hmm. Fonterra. They're the biggest dairy export um, ingredients. They're the biggest company. associates of they're, farmers they're, in the world. They're huge. Yes. They're huge, and they they they're the biggest number one, I think, uh, dairy exporter. Uh, they export about two million t- tons of, of dry ingredients. But when we did the work, uh, and we found uh, they, we looked, they had about three thousand five hundred um, customers around the world because they it's a business to business thing. They dealt with you know some of their competitors were their customers like Nestle and people like that. The fascinating thing was that we found that they had a bunch of very, what I call collaborative customers and they didn't even know who they were. And what was happening was consequently you'd have a collaborative customer placing an order, you know, 18 month type forecast. And then at the short term, you'd have an agile demanding customer come in yesterday and demand something for next week. And someone in the company would say, yes, and they'd steal from Peter to pay Paul. And then when that loyal customer came in to get their regular schedule, which they'd forecast for 18 months, it wasn't there. And people were running around, running the plants. Scrambling, you know, basically. It, it, was, it was like, it was just, everything goes pear-shaped when you, when you get into that sort of scramble state of mind. Yes, yes. And I think this is, this is a, and I would have, uh, I mean, one of my questions that I wanted to ask you is like, when you start working on an assignment, you know, what are the top three things that you you uh, you would ask the client, you know, to quickly identify the root issue, and it sounds to me like the the segmentation is probably one of the. One well, it's it's. You ask them how they got a segmentation, and yes. they they always say yes, of course, because no respectable company hasn't got one. But then you say, well, how do you segment? Mm. And you find that they're not using the segmentation that's of any value at all mm. to supply chain design. It might be useful for tracking the number of beer sales that you make and whether you sell more beer to a, a clubs then you sold to uh, distributors or hotels. But uh, that's virtually no value when you're wanting to invest big dollars in in revamping your network. So our first question is give us a look at your your marketplace. If you haven't got it segmented right, let's segment it right. And the second question is give us a look at your demand data, the sales data, because what we like to look at is uh, do some analytics on on the demand data to see, you know, is there an underlying base load for, for your product and is there, uh, you know, some volatility and can we separate the two because that gives us a clue as to what we might have to do differently inside the company. So it's always about using external sources as a frame of reference to inform the way that we work internally on our processes, our technology combinations, our training and development, our recruitment, um, anything at all that we... we Building capabilities internally, as I said, you know, this morning at Lunchy Sim, uh, we've got to be informed about it from our frame of reference. If we don't have a frame of reference, we're guessing. Yes, yes. Um, and and you 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 work with a lot of um, big multinationals worldwide. Are there certain? I think you've touched upon it. Obviously, uh, the fact that some of them have segmentations, but they're not tracking yep. the right thing. Yep. Um, any other common challenges that they they send they, they tend to, to have, and and are also there specific differences in uh, in, in each context? Look, you know, the the interesting thing about supply chain and working with different companies across industries, they all tell you how different they are, 
and how 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 special they are, right? Uh, but you know, logistic the flow of goods and and information and and uh, finance uh, through any company is the common factor. Um, and even if you're a service company, it is the flow of information, and uh, and that's electronic rather than physical. So I, I look at I look at um, supply chain and the operations side of the supply chain logistics as a as a as a sort of a um, uh, a common a common language, if you like, that, that that we can speak in any company or any industry. It doesn't matter uh, what where we are. Yes. And that gives us a great start because when when you're at the centre of this and you look at a dairy company one one year and a third party logistics company another, and you look at a FMCG company like Unilever, which we did in another case, and you can start to bring some lessons from different sorts of industries cross-pollinate, and yeah. cross-pollinate. Mm-hmm. And if you can't see that the, the, the commonalities, you can't do that sort of cross-pollination. Yes, yes. And it's so helpful, right? I mean, uh, in a yep. lot of times, yeah, we all like to think and companies like to think we're special and we as individuals like to think yeah, we're special, but there's some, there's some commonalities, of course. Um, a question from Marco Antonio Carreno. I think he's, he's actually for, uh, one of our uh, close listeners. What are some of the most advanced tools we can use in supply chain management in order to have uh, visibility of the future and minimize risks while mm. moving forward? Yeah. Look, um, and he's talking, is he talking FMCG or is he just... I think he's from an FMCG perspective. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, FMCG companies uh, have been probably um, doing pretty well um, probably up till the time we started to see electronic high-tech companies coming in who started with a blank sheet of paper, and that was a big advantage because they could more or less architect what they like. Um, I, I think the, the the big risk today facing these companies, like the better companies like FMCG or retail, is the what I would call clock speed. I, I think that the, the, the speed of change in the outside world, um, the which is creating disruption and, and volatility, if it's faster than we can respond internally, there becomes a real disruption Friction. factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter what you do, you're always on the back foot, you're always reacting. Uh, what I'm saying is and I've been I've revisited the work of Charles Fine about 20 years ago when he, he introduced the notion of, of clock speed uh, but didn't really have all the digitization to go with it. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking today that the entire enterprise has to be has to look at itself again, and 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 look at itself from the lean point of view. How can we get rid of redundant processes? How can we bring in technologies that will speed up our decision making? Anything that can speed up the revolutions that that, that and I use that term revolutions like as in revolving. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they can, if you can speed up the whole way that an organisation operates, uh, the uh, I think there's other terms for it, the rhythm of the organisation. So, you know, the best example I have is is, uh, is Zara. You know, where you know the, the, everyone in that organisation every day is thinking about what can I do to speed up what I'm doing, and that comes from the top down to every layer of management, and and as a result, they get a product out the door a new launch every uh, three weeks, mm. uh, which means 16 or 17 revolutions a year. Compare that to someone like a Marks and Spencers who might take 18 months because they've, or, or it take 12 months to order something and then they get it in, they find the colours wrong, they've got to mark it down, 
that's a revolution of one, right? So you can see that the faster the enterprise can move and revolve and the rhythm, it's got to be a rhythm because you can't go zero, 100 miles an hour because that's expensive. I'm talking about everyone doing everything faster on a regular basis, the way they make decisions. Yes, it involves taking a bit of risk in, in decision-making sometimes, but I think we need people inside the business who are prepared to do that because if you want everything done by committee, that's going to slow you down. Yes. So all these processes can be looked at to speed up, and if you speed up, you can, I believe, and we're in the process of proving that, is that you can get on this, you, if you can get your rate of change internally up to match the rate of change externally, externally. you have no differential, therefore you don't see any there's no disruption, if you like, and you don't, and you don't, you know, you don't need forecasting accuracy because you, you you're only three weeks away from your last launch. Uh, so things like forecast accuracy go away. You you, you just need good decision uh, tools, decision making tools to help you make the big decisions. Mm. And almost, I mean, if you, if I can, um, I can take take some of the sharing. It's almost like um, the tools are important, of course, and the technologies are important. Visibility is important, good data is important, but even more so than that is the culture. It's almost the culture of the organization. Like you gave a very good example with Zara, which is yeah. probably the yeah. one of the top supply chains in the world where everybody is living constantly in this framework of, you know, how can we innovate? How can we speed up? How can we be better, faster, more agile in terms of what we are doing? And yeah. they are li- really living it, right? Yeah. So beyond the technologies, because there's other companies that maybe they have state-of-the-art technologies, but maybe they, the yeah. culture is not right. But right. I can tell you that the technologies are is no better than anyone else's. It, it's, it's not super good. Uh, but, but they've gone beyond that, as you say. And just to give you an idea, and we're talking about little things, like uh, Zara, I think, were the first people who uh, took that... Um, uh, that security device that goes on garments that you see when you take the take yes, off in the, the shop, then, yeah. and they, that's made by Tyco. And uh, what they did, they went to Tyco and said, "Look, what would it be possible to put some sort of a sensor in in there, uh, so we can track these goods?" So they actually made it not just a security device, but a tracking, tracking device. device. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to track, uh, particularly when they had uh, when they bought about fifty percent of their of their product is bought. Um, Made the other fifty or sixty percent is is you know made up by them or uh, small cottage industries. The point is they could uh, these devices allowed them to track them. Attract mm-hmm. them. I, when I was in La Caruna, they took me to the township and they had about seven different stores there for each of their major brands, and they showed me sales attendants walking around with uh, little two-way radios. So you know. They could communicate with each other if someone came into the store. You know, I'm thinking here about small innovations, but they'd been dreamed up, dreamed up by the people in the business. And every day they were thinking continuous improvement. What's my innovation? How can I innovate? And with that sort of um, depth and breadth of, 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 of horsepower, you're going to get some great results. You're going to get a few failures as well, but who cares? Yes, overall, who cares? Exactly. Um, and, and just to come back a little bit to the point, because we had, um, we had uh, Dr. Rajiv, so he's a professor actually at the SPJ in School of Management here yeah, in Singapore. I met, I met, yeah, I met Yeah, it's a very, uh, very, very good course, of course. And, and he, he brought also the point, just in terms of prioritization, because we will have to talk a little bit, and a lot of people are into technologies, because, and typically every company has limitations. You cannot invest in all technologies at the same time because nobody has that much money or time. Yep. How should... Organizations prioritize the areas of their investment to counter the volatility. Right. Well, look, uh, you, you you do need. I mean, these days, um, uh, even SAP, which was the sort of uh, 
the patron saint of uh, the ERP system along with uh, Oracle, um, uh, they came out with this sort of um, transactional systems. But the trouble with those were that they had no real decision-making capability. They were just transactional. What we need, I think you still need transactional systems that can cope with big volumes of data. Uh, and you're going to need this, particularly now you, if you have an Internet of Things strategy as we talked about. But if you do the segmentation right and you understand that some of your customers are collaborative, then what you do is on top of your transactional system, you put a CRM. And the CRM sits on top and interfaces with it and it... it uh, uh, allows you to manage those 100 or 50 or 10 collaborative customers in a very systematic way and don't, and don't forget about them, right? And then over here you, where you've got the Agile, um, you, you might put something like Demantra or uh, some uh, uh, software that's very much designed to handle agility uh, for those customers that are always predominantly in an Agile state of mind. Um, and it's, you also would load up um, freestanding uh, software network optimization models that you would use at the strategic level when you're revamping your uh, network every five years or use it at the technical level where if a customer asks you to do something and you're not too sure whether you've got the capacity to do it, you could run a new scenario. Yes. So it's a, like it's a horses for courses thing and... And, and I think, and, and I think a lot of these new event tools that have, been, and I'm not familiar with every one of them, coming out are like middleware that you can sit on top of of your underlying base base load um, transactional software, and uh, start to use it to uh, virtually help you in your decision making, but more importantly, help you make fast decisions. Yes. Yes. Um... Susan Jacob had a had a question, and I think this is a this is something on everybody's lips uh, these days. You know, blockchain, and and, and yep. we have a couple of very good cases already. Walmart, uh, Maersk uh, have done a team up with IBM to create uh, to recreate supply chains using blockchain. Um, what what do you think is the future of a supply chain with blockchain? Uh, taking into consideration, of course, there's going to be learning curves. There's going to be yeah. uh, governments getting involved, regulations, and and, and all yeah. of that. Look. Um, the blockchain is, is uh, built on a technology the same as a cryptocurrency, um, uh, uh, and that's how I think banks first sort of saw it. Uh, of course, if you look around the world, the people who are doing far more uh, experimentation right now are the big banks because if blockchain fulfills the type of um, dimensions and, and, and scope that we think it's going to do, it, it could disintermediate could, yeah. uh, the banks and remove them from their very... Um, Profitable business of letters of credit and acting as an intermediary between them. But having said all that, um, uh, look, I think as someone said at the conference this morning, we've got to get our digitization right first because blockchain can't really work unless it's got a a complete digitized picture and connecting all the different players along a particular supply chain, right from the supplier, the third parties, um, customs, and eventually the owners. But uh, it, it, I think it's going to happen, and I think the great advantages won't, uh, and when the protocols get worked out, and it might be a couple more years, um, and that, and we need that time to get digitization properly, you know, in place, uh, in place anyhow. I think we're going to see tremendous efficiencies. I mentioned again at the Logisim conference this morning where uh, it could just it, remove a huge amount of paperwork if all the parties are privy to a change in arrangement or, or a contract or something 
um, and they agree with it, that's it, you know, and yes. there's, no need, yeah. there's no need for paper. Yes. And so in that sense, it, it also has a, a security dimension. But I think probably for me, most importantly, it's the providence that it will offer, that the, the methodology of a blockchain where you're, you're linking various blocks in a, in a, a, a digital ledger uh, with all the players visible and seeing what's changing and agreeing to those changes is going to mean that products are going to, it's something that you sell, say if you sell some beef uh, in growing in Western Australia and we know where the animal came from because it had an ear tag and then it was processed uh, and that, that meat had a particular DNA and that DNA was built into the blockchain and it was ultimately then sold through um, distributors and retailers and eventually to the consumer in China, that that retailer could say hand on heart that that particular meat has come from a particular animal. Traceability gr- would be very grass-fed mm-hmm. from Western Australia. It has not been substituted. It, it, so I think it's going to be very uh, powerful for things like um, um, food and food security, um, uh, for wine, um, you know, meat. And I, I'm looking forward to that. I, I think mm. that you know, the, the ability to offer uh, that sort of uh, credibility and accreditation is going to be the biggest thing, apart from all the efficiencies that I think it's going to bring. Yes. So it's going to happen. Um, it, there's still protocols to work out. We're still in the experimental stage, but judging by how much effort the, each of the, the big banks are putting into this, there's definitely something involved here, and they're striving very hard to keep a, uh, keep. Uh, uh, you know, some part of the supply chain to themselves and yes. uh, they might be intermediated out. Yes, and then yeah. they might need to tweak the model a little bit, but yep. I, yeah. for sure they're very, they're very concerned, so they cannot, they cannot not invest in basically uh, in this uh, in, in blockchain. Exactly. And, and, uh, and banks are at the forefront of this. And also, I mean, I, I remember that I was reading with, in terms of traceability and, and, and proof of origin, I was reading that Walmart, when they did the pilot with IBM, a very specific example for mangoes, it would take them five days before blockchain technology to trace that mango to where did it come from. Yes. And with blockchain, it took them 1.2 seconds. There we go. So, I mean, yeah. I think it's it's a no-brainer. This, this, it, it's uh, going to become uh, a great marketing tool. I know so a couple of years ago I was asked, um, BASF uh, were, were being asked the question by Unilever, who in turn were being asked the question by their consumers about the labels on their products because just about every food product has palm oil in it. And the question was being asked by people who are worried about sustainability, you know, where does that palm oil coming from? Is it coming off old pastures or old forests that have been cleared or new forests that have been cleared? And, of course, in a homogeneous type product like that, which all goes into a tank, you know, you can't, you can't actually put hand on heart and say, well, I know where it came from and I can trace it. With blockchain, it will be possible. Yes, yes. Um, talk about digitalization. So uh, Sam Locke uh, is, is, uh, is asking, so definitely digitalization yep. is shaping and will reshape the landscape where communication IT is a concern. But how do you see the physical movement part? How will that change? How will that cope to, to better, I don't know, is better inventory? Is BTO the answer? Look, I think what's going to happen with, uh, and we've seen it in a way with our work with uh, Snyder Electric and, and with some of the other companies we've worked with, that uh, the big gains come from once you know what your what your network is being asked to serve in terms of the marketplace and the, the differential ways that the, the customers want to be serviced, 
and you look back and you review your network, what you find is that it's not always about closing DCs or whatever, but it could mean it could mean retasking things. Yes. So, for instance, um, you might, uh, if you've got a, a 30,000 or 40,000 SKU, um, instead of carrying those 30,000 or 40,000 SKUs in each of your DCs in a country or in a region, you might look at uh, using Pareto and looking at the buying behaviours, only the top 10% might need to be close to the marketplace in a smaller DC and you might take all the rest and put them in an agile DC some distance away and, and, and use faster transport in the catch-up phase. So yeah, I, I think it's really redesigning the, uh, the facilities and the, and the structures and where those facilities are uh, receiving their products from, which manufacturing plants, and which products are, uh, are actually uh, stored in each of those facilities. And so it's not a matter of more inventory, it's a matter of actually having the appropriate inventory in each of the facilities yes. and, and, and not having everything. Because the big cost is carrying a full range and secondly, uh, having so much of that range not moving. So yes. you'll find some, some of it won't even move in once in a year whereas others will move 12, 15 times in a year in an industrial product. So um, we did some work, the work we did in China for, for uh, Snyder Electric, um, it, was, uh, it wasn't, the emphasis there wasn't on cost because the cost of service quite good, but what the Chinese um, uh, president was wanting was uh, can we only have something like 30 or 40%, I think, of our customers are getting next day delivery. Yes, uh, what, what can we do to our network to try, stock things differently in different places? And what we did, we did the work, and by using virtually the same facilities but retasking them, we doubled the number of their customers. I think it went to 76% of their customers were getting next-day delivery, but on the same footprint, but, but just by being cleverer yes. about which products were being stored. A location, where, yeah, basically yeah. smart location. Yeah. Clever things to do, yeah. Um, Christian Go is asking, what's the essence of the term supply chain resilience for a third-party logistics? So he works for a 3PL. Mm. Uh, how does a 3PL become more resilient? Look, 3PLs are in a very difficult position. They, um, they, they, act, they act, if you think about it, as a switching mechanism between their client and their client's customers. And, and so what it means is when they, when they look forward to their clients' customers, they have to understand the buying behaviours. They have to understand the expectations of those customers. But when they look back towards their client who's paying them the money to do the work and be an extension, they have to be able to, if you like, align with the internal strategies of that company. And that may be quite different. So for, to give you an idea, you, when they look back, they may have to have more of a collaborative uh, culture and collaborate with the management and listen to them and try and meet their expectations. But when they look forward to the to the that that client's customers in the marketplace, they may have to have collaborative strategies, uh, lean strategies, agile strategies, projects, and all the rest. So, it's it's the task is to have to build an organisation structure that is. Is, is even more resilient than a typical single company because they're dealing with multiple, multiple clients and, and they've got, you know, multiple clients, customers, etc. So there's no secret about it. Um, I think they've got to see themselves as a switching mechanism and 
they've got to look at an organisation structure that will allow them to align backwards and forwards and they've got to, I think, have very, very high-quality people to do this mm. and people who can almost multitask. So I may Switch be, their hats. Yeah, switch their hat. I mean, even though, uh, let, let's say I'm very much a collaborative person, uh, in one situation that works well if I'm working on that. But if I'm also having to deal with uh, a customer over here who's agile and demanding, I've got to switch my mindset, even though it naturally I, it's not something I do naturally. You know what I mean? So... People in 3PLs have got to be able to switch their mindsets away from their natural mindset and switch it back and forth and do it without becoming too stressed because that's that multidisciplinary thing. You can't have dedicated teams on, on every client unless they're very big. Yes. And uh, so, so uh, I, I think the the problem has been, if I if I if I'd be so brutal to say that in many 3PLs. They grew up from transport companies and very much an operational mindset and where they were just continued, you know, consumed with operations and pricing and process. Um, and and that really it's only in the recent five years or so that some of the bigger ones now have started to recognise they need very much more higher quality Solution, executives. Solution for yeah, them. because you need quality people in there that, that can mix and match with the top people on both the, the client side and on the client's customer side. Yes. No, so no easy fixes there. They, they, and while this is all happening, you know, the numbers of 3PLs around the world are being rationalised and I think we're going to see a much bigger decrease, a big decrease in 3PLs, but, except maybe in some places like China where you'll always have the locals. But... Uh, in those cases even, you need the big multinationals to be able to link with those um, uh, national carriers to, to get the last mile. Yes. And that needs technology, but it also needs cultural fit. Yes. And I mean, it's, uh, I think that you're right and you're brutally honest and I think it's, 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 it's fair that three pills are in a, in a difficult position right now. And yeah. And almost the question becomes, you know, what, what do you think that the role would be in, the, in I don't know, in five to ten years? Mm. Because... As you yep. said, right, from that operations mindset, which they mostly grew up with, to now solution-focused, let's see how can we address mm. and, and build solutions to our clients. It's not an easy no. uh, transition necessarily. No, I mean, again, it's, too much of it is just changing the word. Uh, now we're in the solutions business, you know. But uh, it's easy to say, but, you know, what it does mean is you, 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 and I know they don't do it very well, what it means is you, you're theoretically getting to know the, the, the customer's expectations and yet they're, they're not. They're, they're still guessing and yet they're saying they're in the solutions business. So I think that they've really got to go back to scratch and the, the better 3PLs and, you know, I can think of some of the bigger ones have got the capacity and the, if you like, the quality of personnel now to start really doing it right uh, and the operational bit is really will become the easiest bit. Yes. And actually, there's, there's an interesting question from Mick Jones, uh, and he's, uh, he's yeah, the head, of, head of logistics here for, for DS Smith, and mm. he was saying, uh, what's your view in terms of the structure of the industry going forward? Because, you know, we see a lot of evolution of this Uber type of organizations in road transport, in digital freight, like containers, like freighters, like uh, all this, uh, these platforms that are fundamentally changing the industry structure. Um, how, uh, yeah, actually, he was giving the example of the holiday industry, which transformed basically in the last 20 years. Yeah. How do yeah. you think uh, it will change that? Look, um, you know, I think the biggest, the biggest change in many ways will be the digitization change. And 
the development of sensors, um, which will be um, self-informing, self-reporting, uh, which won't require going through gates or having uh, expensive equipment. Uh, they'll just be, you know, connected by GPS, etc. And those those sensors are just about here, and the cost of them will be low. And then once someone knows where their product is down to that product, not just the case level, but the product level within the case and the case on the pallet and the pallet within the container, I think pretty much everything else is, is um, not, not, a, not, not on. I mean, after that, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have an Uber truck to run you from A to B, and it might be fine. But I don't think that's where the big, big costs are. It's, it's, um, it's the costs that come from uh, damage to your product uh, and not knowing about it. Uh, it, it. It can come from um, um, you know, leakage through stealing your product. Um, you know, there, there's a whole range of different things that can happen to your product, which in improved, uh, improved digitisation and ultimately blockchain will, will virtually stop all that. And that's where the big gains will be. And, uh, you know, a bit of Uberization around transportation shouldn't be, uh, will, will be nice. And that'll have to be properly regulated. But it's, we want to know where the product is, whether it's on a, an Uber truck or a TNT truck, yes. doesn't matter. You need to be able to trace it properly. Yeah. yeah. Um, he also had a question about data. So data is key to us, to us all and is our unique IP, right? So as a shipper, should we be insourcing data? And outsourcing transactional processes, and if so, does that mean the end of you know the provider-driven 4PL mm. solutions, or you know the development of internal shippers for PL? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we talked earlier about the so-called um, provider-driven 4PL. Um, a real 4PL is not a provider-driven 4PL. That's uh, that's just a, that's a three and a half PL where they just add a few extra services. Um, the, the proper 4PL, in my definition, was very much having a consortium. But when it comes to data, um, I, I think here, as I mentioned this morning on my speech, that uh, I see a great opportunity. First of all, never never sort of uh, give your data away. Uh, the more data that, about our business and our industry and the things that affect our industry that we can bring in and I'm suggesting we have an intermediary type of style, a thing where, like a lead box, where you bring data in, you analyse it, you aggregate it, and you ship the aggregated data out to the partners who are part of this intermediary plus their own data so they can look at it, but they don't get competitors' data. I think we've got to start doing more industry-level data collection and using confidential methodologies to handle that data so that you don't um, undermine... The, the competitiveness between yes. one, between the players. But at the same time, we want all players in an industry to benefit from raising the bar and having a better view of the aggregate data and their indi- compared to their individual. Yes. So I think that's the future going forward. It's going to require a slightly different um, organisation design uh, to get people together to trust uh, an individual. We've got it. I mean, just to give you an example, in Australia we have one example of this. It's called uh, Cash Services Australia, and uh, it was uh, uh, set up by uh, four banks in Australia, which are all competitors, uh, but and the Reserve Bank, and it was with the under the auspices of the Australian uh, Anti 
Competition Commission. Um, and the whole idea was that uh, moving cash around the, 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 the uh, economy every night, it's collected by armoured cars, it's taken to a point, it's resorted, it's put out again to ATMs and so on. And there was a lot of logistics costs in being incurred by, um, you know, four or five companies, uh, armoured car companies going to the same location. So what they did is they made this company and put it together and, you know, one one armoured car company would do all the ATMs in an area and bring the cash back. Another one would do all the shopping centres. And it took a huge amount of logistics cost out, which benefited the whole industry. And the information about what was going on was only shared with individuals in terms of how much of their own cash was moving uh, compared to the aggregate so they could measure the percentages. Um, And uh, I think, broadly speaking, it... uh, it also helped the Reserve Bank of Australia understand what was happening in the economy. Yes. And and, and then when, when Ron had the question, coming uh, looping a little bit again on blockchain, uh, with so many players coming up with their own blockchain, with their own currencies or, 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 or tokens, yep. do you see the possibility of a true total connected blockchain network happening or how would you see it? Look, it, it might be like um, AVs. You know, back in the, the 70s and 80s, we had two or three systems. We had, I think, I uh, can't remember the names of them now, but we had the Japanese yeah. version and we had an, another version and, and eventually one version, you know, one out over the other. This was on, on CD, not yeah. CDs, on, on uh, um, uh, sort of... Um, it wasn't that it was even before then. No. You probably weren't even born. Um, but we had tapes. They were just on, on tapes. Um, look, uh, I think, as I said earlier, we're going to – blockchain is definitely coming. It's got enough advantages to keep everyone interested. Uh, it's just a matter of which protocol will finally be the one that's selected by the majority. Yes. Let's hope it gets down to one because we, we don't want to be running dual systems. You know, that, that's going to undermine a lot of the benefits. Yes. Uh, but it's coming um, and uh, – and typically, people, I mean, typically the market at the end chooses one. It chooses one, and chooses that's for convenience. Yeah, that's uh, what that's what will happen. Yeah. Um, uh, what do you think is the future supply chain target operating model? So, I, and I think you've touched upon it, but I mean, mm. just to, uh, I think Manron is asking, you know, will the there be best in class models for different industries, or will the future target operating model no, be standardized? No, I don't think I, I I don't like the word standardized unless standardized means that we're going to have a range a menu of of, of technologies and um, processes and organization designs all pretty standard and in different industries will have slightly different combinations of these so i'm i'm looking at you know, creating unique solutions from different combinations of standard Solution. Ways of yes. doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way I think the world's mm-hmm. going to go. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to see, you know, each industry. Or because I said that's earlier, this is a common language. This logistics thing. You're moving a product. It it doesn't know whether it's bananas or gold bars. Yes. You know. Yes. Yes. There's some there's some things that go on around it, yeah. on weights and measures which are important. But but broadly speaking, uh, it's a common language. And we ought to be selecting from a menu uh, and coming up with the best combination or most appropriate combination for our, our industry own. or mm. our particular uh, company. Mm. Uh, another another key buzzword, right? Uh, AI, artificial yep. intelligence, you yep. know, related technologies at a faster pace than ever before. We're seeing it. It's not new, but now it's, it seems to be blowing up of proportion. 
There are several reports on possible huge talent crunch in coming years. Do you think it's really true? And, and what would be your advice to organizations to ensure the employees are ready uh, for the impact of industrial 4.0? Look, uh, again, we, we're here mainly talking about inside the manufacturing plant and inside the distribution center. I'm not so much thinking that trucks, autonomous trucks, are going to be arriving on a large scale. But, uh, again, if you, if you look at... Um, the idea of, uh, you know, a base load of your business is pretty predictable because it's coming from customers that you know, then AI would work very well there where it's machine-driven, robot-driven, and it, there's not a lot of variation that the robot has to worry about. But I think on top of that, where we've got a lot of volatility in different parts of our business, we're still going to need human intervention, albeit... Uh, you know, with some help from technologies to, to manage that volatility, but it's not going to be straight AI just yet. Yeah. I think, I think the, the solutions in all these cases are what I call hybrid solutions. It's a mixture of the robot and the human and the combinations. And to give you an example, um, I saw a very clever innovation at the new uh, Kunin Nagel um, Innovation Centre in Singapore a month or so ago when I was here. And it was around picking, and and, the, and it was a sort of like a mule, a little robot, like with a with a tray, and the robot was like a dog, and it, it recognised the, the the picker, and it would follow the picker everywhere, and the picker would just do the picking, and had it, and then at some point it would press a button, and the mule would go back to a central location, assembly point, and someone back there would unload it and put the, you know the the uh, product in a certain location to be put on a truck and then a mule would come on back. So little things like that. I, they're early days. Um, there was another example I saw there where a guy working in the warehouse uh, where wore a special AI type of uh, vest and the, the people um, you know, in the control room could see where he was. They could direct him. Um, it was for health and safety reasons as well. Some labour... Uh, people may not like it, but it's coming and it's, you know, if something or an accident happens, you know, we know where that individual is. So there's, there's a lot of things, a lot of technological um, uh, devices that are going to be there to help man do a better job, but we're still going to need uh, men as well. Yes, yes. Men and women. Um, and and, and uh, Dot, Dot Cool is asking, you know, when you go into a business for the first time to consult a new strategy, it's a different type to, uh, to ask the question. So what are some of the resistance yep. that you come across? Look, the, the biggest problem when we go inside companies is, uh, is what I call the myths that exist. Um, they're, they're, and the bigger the dog you are, the bigger your myth and the bigger you, the more say you have. There's a lot of opinion and people sort of sometimes say to me in desperation, you know, what can we do to, to break that, in, you know, because the boss thinks this way or that way. And I, I say simply, look, do the segmentation work, do the behavioural work. It's, it's, it's a, the methodology is qualitative and quantitative and it's fact-based. And if it's presented well, it's, it's irrefutable. I mean, once you explain to someone what the structure of their market is for their particular product, they can dislike it, Yes, they can, you know, try to deny it, but in fact, because it's fact and it's coming from the customer, it's irrefutable. Yes, and that's the way to say, right, okay, I accept that. I didn't think that was the case. Okay, that's what the customers are saying. Okay, I'll agree to, the, you know, your suggestion about the way you want to 
uh, re-engineer the inside of the business to to match with that. Yes, yes. That's the only way to do it because otherwise you're up against your opinion versus my opinion and, and uh, you know... It, it's, it's a never-ending debate. It's a never-ending debate and you can't win that yes. if you're a middle manager. Um, and moving on to the people segment, right, because I think mm -hmm. it, it also the two key aspects of, of Gatorna Dynamic Alignment are culture and leadership, right? yep. so it's on the soft skill side. Yep. Uh, let's talk a little bit in, in terms of each of them. How can an organization shape the culture to achieve high performance in their supply chains? Mm. Well, high performance, you know, can be measured in different ways, and that's one of the problems that people have different KPIs. Um, what I like to make uh, the distinction, if you like, between... Um, the supply chain function as a function that runs the physical side of the business uh, and picks up product from manufacturing and, and, deliver, and stores it and delivers it uh, and make that distinction between what I call the supply chain philosophy, which should be embraced by everyone, sales, marketing, procurement, finance. Because as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're managing our businesses vertically, but our customers are buying horizontally. And this is a flaw. And We've got, to, we've got to finally get rid of this flaw because at the moment um, what's caught up with this is the speed with which customers' expectations have increased coming up with the coming of e-commerce. 30, 40 years ago, someone would order something and be happy to take a week or seven days or ten days or two weeks. Now they want it in one day. And, and even if we could give it to them in one day, we don't have the structure to do it because yes. the people who are managing vertically and thinking about their budgets are then asked in the same breath to think horizontally and how are we going to get that delivered. It's impossible. It's impossible to do it. And companies like, uh, you know, uh, here in here in um, Asia-Pacific, uh, Li and Fung, um, uh, in, in around the world, uh, um, Adidas, um, uh, so Zara, a number of companies now are experimenting with the idea of keeping your vertical specialisms in place because you need those. Um, actually seconding people out of them and putting them over here and forming teams which drive the horizontal flow. Mm -hmm. So this is not matrix management. This is uh, you, You've actually got two levels of management, one vertical, one horizontal, and they're, and they're in sync. Yes. And, then, and the, the guys who, who are seconded into those clusters are managed by a different person, have different joint KPIs, and then these, after two years they go back into their function. So... It, you, you, you're moving people around, you're giving them a much greater, more interesting uh, career path. Um, and I think that's what you're going to have to do to actually uh, decrease the lead time and get anywhere near what the expectations are of today's consumer. Yes. So it's almost like building a culture of openness and collaboration instead of siloed. I mean, breaking yep. through the walls. Right? That's right. And um, the great thing, if you take uh, a, a manufacturing person out of manufacturing and put them in a, a multidisciplinary team that's got a KPI that's very focused on the customer, if there's a problem that man in manufacturing, that person will have an informal link to this person in manufacturing. They'll sort it out. Whereas in today's structure, they've got to go up the function across and down and... You know, it, it's the biggest problem today in lead time blowouts is inside the business in uh, orders being processed too slowly. It's bureaucracy, basically. Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, um, you know, credit checking that takes two weeks instead of one minute, you know, that sort of stuff. Yes. All of that is eating into the lead time. Now, if you can kill all that and just compress it all and start doing some clever things in manufacturing like postponement, You, you can actually get your lead times down to hours 
if not a few days. Yes. And how about leadership, John? I mean, uh, uh, you know, that's that's key, right? That's, well, that drives it all. That drives I mean, it all, right? If you don't have a leader or leaders who have got this sort of architectural mind, who uh, uh, you know can look at the marketplace and say, "Yep, for our sort of product, um, we we really need to speed up the organisation, or we need to." 60% of our customers will take the standard, that's fine, seven days, but there's a, another 40 who happen to be the growing part of our market that we've got to do better. Unless you've got a leadership team who really understands that and then starts to put strategies and build subcultures and, and, and organisation designs to deliver those strategies, you're never going to make it because if the leaders don't believe in it or if, worse still if they're disconnected, you know, I think a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are like that. They grew fat on fat margins. Um, they they come off patent. Suddenly, supply chain is important. Uh, they start listening to everyone. They get confused. They don't know what to do. I see a lot of that. So, um, you know, the best people in the world, in my view, in supply chain, are those who are under the pump all the time. Yes. People like Apple, you know, who, you know, their product is wanted – you go to buy an Apple product, you want it. You know, it's got to be there. And and so if you reverse back from there, what has to happen in the pipeline from manufacturing through to the retail store to get that product so that it's there when you want it? That Those people who are under the pump because it's a fashion item and fashion tends to be the, the thing that's under the pump most, they're the best supply chain companies in the world you'll find. Yes, yes. Um, and then we actually, you know, companies call upon us, and that's the, that's the business of Morgan Phillips, right, in terms of hiring people, in terms of placing senior executives. But a lot of times it boils down to a few key attributes, right? And, and, yeah. and it, uh, actually a lot of times it's not the technical no. side, especially when you're talking no, about a chief uh, supply chain officer, when you're talking about a vice president for supply chain for a region. It's, it's, it's the soft skills, right? So in your, in your view, uh, and going a little bit uh, deeper right into leadership and what it means and, yeah. and all that. What are some of the three attributes, let's say, of a chief supply look, chain officer? Uh, look, I think a chief supply chain officer has really got to be, in a sense, like a, um, a general manager. He needs to have done an MBA. He needs to... He, he may have come out of... Uh, he may be an engineer by first degree, but he's gone back, he's done his MBA, he's, he's picked up skills in finance, he's picked up skills in strategy and HR... He's got to be, I think, an overall manager and he's got to be able to manage people with different mindsets because in a leadership team, you, 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 you want people who have empathy with customers and, and particularly collaborative customers. So they've got to be able to build a collaborative cluster of people and shape it like a coach does a, you know, a, a football team or a sporting team, you want uh, someone in, also in your team who's very cost-conscious and is always worried about cost and because here we'll put him in charge of the lean team. We want someone in there who's young and impatient and wants to make quick decisions and he's the guy that will take risk and make and he looks after the, the agile team and we've got people who we go to when we're looking for a major, major new um, solution to a major disruption or disaster. And, and the, the chief supply chain officer has got to be able to manage basically what's oil and water. These are be, they'll be competing against each other. They'll be competing with each other for resources. But they're all needed because their individual mindsets and, uh, are, are needed because we have customers like that. Yes. So I think the chief supply chain officer in many ways is, 
is the CEO of the biggest part of the company, which very mostly is procurement, manufacturing and um, logistics. And about the only thing he doesn't really do is manage the brand, sales and marketing, but he should have a strong relationship with those people and he certainly should be on uh, the main board. Yes, yes. Um, and, 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 and that brings me to the point, right, because in, in reality, and it's a question that we need to put it, put it on the table, in reality, some companies, in some organizations, actually, supply chain still doesn't actually have a seat at the table. No. Um, why is that? I mean, why? I think, they're in, I think it's because they're in denial. They haven't understood that they're a supply chain company. I mean, you know, it, 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 no one makes any money unless someone sells something and someone delivers it, right? And, and we need people who can sell and we need people who can deliver. And, uh, um, you know, for many years, retailers were a bit like that. They, they thought they were traders. So most re- retailers, like the early days of, of Tesco in the UK, they had very clever people who could, were good at buying and selling. They were like traders. They never thought about the third league, which is then as they became more sophisticated, they realised they've got to buy well, they've got to bring the product in, they've got to put it on the shelf, they need good merchandising, but you've, you've got to get the product in on time and you've got to factor that in. And it's only in the last 10 or 15 years that you know the global retailers have realised that, that you need people who are good merchandising and, and buyers, you need people who are good store managers, and the third leg of the stool is logistics. Yes. And, and so they've realised it, but there's still companies out there who are manufacturing who think they make a good product and you, it'll sell itself. I'm sorry, there's too much competition out there now. So uh, I think the first thing is the realisation that supply chain and logistics within it is a very, very, very important equal part of everything we do and we should have that represented on the board. Yes. And I mean, I think there's there's more and more encouraging examples, right? I think you, uh, let's, let's, let's just take Unilever. I mean, you mentioned you've yep. done a lot of work. Uh, Pierre-Luigi Sigismondi, who used to be yep. the chief supply chain officer at Unilever, yes. he made the transition now into, uh, he's now the president of Southeast Asia and, right. and Australia. Um, he's, a, he's an excellent example of somebody that had a lot of exposure to supply chain and then made the transition to PNL, mm. which kind mm. of, exactly what you oh, said, yeah, right? Because right. he's like a general manager. He mm. then moved to a, to a full... It was a natural, uh, natural transition for him. And all he has to learn now is about the brand and, and so on. But... Fascinatingly, when I we did a lot of work in Asia here for uh, Ralph Lauren, and the chief supply chain officer there was a young Brit, actually, you know, although he's based in New York. And uh, we did quite a lot of work looking at their the way they collected all their product from manufacturers in, and brought it into Hong Kong and shipped it to Greensboro in in the US and then distributed. And what impressed me most about this guy um, was that you could ask him any question about the brands, about the, the product. He knew it all, right? Yeah. He was the chief supply chain officer, but he also understood the, the product. Yes. And I think that's the new breed of, uh, because then they easily can step up. And he's now president of, of Ralph Lauren in Japan. So it's a it's an easy step up for them to, uh, if, you, if you have that sort of And depth. it's critical because otherwise yeah. the business will not give you the credibility. Absolutely, um, absolutely. We're moving to the final segment. Just a few questions on the personal side, uh, John. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're a person that, that has achieved a lot in your life. Um, are there some leadership principles that you follow in your day-to-day work? Um, look, yes. I, I think um, my day-to-day, and I've always been like this, is that uh, I, I get up in the morning, uh, I think about what I've got to do today, uh, and I attack it with um, enthusiasm. But most importantly, I look to try and learn something new every day. 
that is my principle. That I've got to learn something new every day, and that's why from time to time, if I'm not speaking at a conference, I'll go to a conference and listen to what people are saying. And you know, even I'm someone who's supposed to be advising people, but even we have got to, you know, put ourselves in positions where we continue our learning. So I think if you stop learning, you die, mm-hmm. and that's that's the principle I live on. And more importantly, I think, or most importantly. In this field, you have to be very eclectic. You have to be prepared to take uh, information in from all sorts of different places and join the dots. And yes. I, I spend my life trying to join the dots and make make something out of nothing, as it yes. were, and take common things and turn them into something that you're extraordinary. Uh, so that's really the main thing I look at. And in your career, actually, you made the switch, right? You made the switch from you worked at, uh, yeah. at Accenture, you were in academia, you became a global figure and recognized thought leader. You know, how, how did you manage to do that? What were some of your key learnings? Uh, look, it, it, it's, it evolves. I think one of the things I learned a long time ago, and I, I once heard the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University make the same point when she was addressing uh, uh, a bunch of boys in high school and saying, look, when you go through life, uh, when you get presented with an opportunity, you you grab it and you go with it, right? You don't sit back and say, well, ooh, you know, I'm, I'll wait, I think, another year or a week because there may be a better opportunity come along, you know. I know people like that and they go nowhere because they never make a decision about anything. So I've always been someone. So when I started engineering, um, after several years, I got a bit tired of it. I tried um, I tried a few American companies and sort of different parts of engineering, oil fields and hydraulics, still didn't get it. At the same time, I was doing my MBA and I was introduced to the early days of distribution management and logistics by a Canadian professor. Uh, I got really interested in it, decided I would, you know, jump into that field but not go to the bottom again and work my way up because I'd already been, I was 32 at that stage. So I decided, looked around the world and decided to go to Cranfield because it had a very good industry background and, you know, people like Rolls-Royce and others were involved and um, do my PhD and sort of leapfrog. And uh, I did that. And uh, after four years, I, on two, uh, three years, I got my PhD. I did a bit of teaching and then I was invited to spend a year at Oxford but didn't really like the, the, the Oxford sort of life. And uh, uh, so then we decided to go back to Australia because we had a small family and... Uh, when I got back there, life was good in the early 80s, but there was no theory, no concepts, no nothing. And that's when I decided to grab everything by the by the um, horns and try to start to making some, some theories and concepts that we could use as frameworks to filter things going forward and leave it as a bit of a legacy. So in all parts of my life, there's been some changes, but there's there's been these have been opportunities that have been presented to me and I've taken them and... Yeah. My wife would argue I've made too many changes, but I'm too obsessive now about this field. But I think, like any athlete or you know world champion, you you have to be obsessive about if you want to be the best. Yes, yes. And, and any and you might have answered it with the first question, but any any other personal habit that contributes to your success apart from the fact that you are constantly wanting to learn something every day? No, uh, I think that I think the learning thing is the big thing, and mm-hmm. and and why I. Really, uh, because all the other things you can get, you know, I've got yeah. young analysts who work for me who do clever stuff, and then I can look at. I don't have to. I don't have to be able to do my own PowerPoint, although I can do a bit. You know, I mean, you don't have to do a lot of those basics. I, I think it's just the mindset that you're always got your mind open. You're always looking. Your imagination, um, 
Uh, the first chapter of my PhD was about innovation, and I, I surveyed all the literature, reviewed all the literature on innovation. It took me a year because there was so much written about innovation, and it's a lot of it's misunderstood and difficult to apply. Um, so I, I just think that uh, you've got to be uh, go where the opportunities uh, present, keep an open mind, have a learning mindset, and uh, finally, uh, as a side sort of bar to that, uh, try to bring along young people. And you know, I've had young uh, analysts join me from all over the world, from um, Germany. Uh, we've got one from Germany at the moment. Uh, we'll keep her for three or four years, and then she'll launch out. She'll be a brilliant executive in a company. We've had them from Holland, from Vietnam, and I help them with the education and do you know get into university and do MBAs and stuff like that. So I believe that you've got to give do a, a bit of giving back as well and breed this new breed because. Uh, supply chain people are not born; they they come from different backgrounds, and you've got to shape them. Yes. Yep. And if you could give uh, some advice to a you know to a young graduate of a university wanting to achieve a great career in supply chain and yep. become the chief supply chain officer of yep. a manufacturing company, yep. what would it be? Look, I, what I'd be saying is, look, um, you, I don't care what your undergraduate degree is; it could be an arts; it doesn't matter, just as long as you're a good thinker. Um, Once you've done your undergraduate, go out, work in industry for four or five years. Uh, so you start to understand the way the world works, warts and all. Uh, then go back and do an MBA or an MSc in logistics uh, at a good university like Cranfield where they have you know, one-year type of MSCs. And I've certainly helped a lot of people get into those places. Uh, and then come out now really with all the theory and, and a bit of practical knowledge and And you interview a number of companies, not they interview you. You look around and and try and find a company that seems to have a, an executive, a top executive that seems to be going in the direction that you'd like the company. You, it's no use joining companies where, um, you know, you get frustrated. And I've seen even people here today who are frustrated with their company because they know what they want to do, but they they and they leave and then they get very down on themselves. So the last thing is. You do the interviewing. You select the company. You look at it, and you may get a few wrong, but you'll get it, you'll get it right in the end. So, and and it has to be a place where you can practice your imagination and bring some real value yeah. in terms of the supply chain design and operation. Yes, yes, yes. John, thank you very much. It's been a very insightful uh, sharing. My pleasure to have you with us today, and thank you for taking the time. My pleasure, Robert, and all the best. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamario.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest uh, articles as well as future guests for the podcast and if you have any suggestions or any other idea please feel free to write to me i respond to all and also please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other c-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us stay tuned <laughs>